SQD 90.7 FM in Santa Cruz, California. This is the High Poetry Collective, and I'm your host, Julie Murphy. Tonight, we'll be talking with Lisa Charnock and Ken Weissner about the poetry workshop at the Salinas Valley State Prison. Later in the program, Rose Black, another teacher, will add in with her experiences and perspectives. Listeners, please note, this show is being pre-recorded as we shelter at home. Please be patient with the sound. We've all been experiencing some breakdowns with the internet. We're gonna do our best. Lisa and Ken, welcome. It's so nice to have you with us. Good to be here. Thanks, Julie. You're welcome. <clears throat> I'm gonna, gonna read your bios here so our listeners know a little bit about you. Lisa Charnock's poetry has appeared in the Southern Poetry Review, Zone 3, Grist, the Cape Rock, Red Wheelbarrow, Pennsylvania English, and Evening Street Review. Lisa is completing her poetry MFA in Solstice Creative Writing Program of Pine Manor College. And she also studies under Ellen Bass and Danusha Lamaris. She teaches a bi-monthly poetry workshop at the Salinas Valley State Prison. Lisa Charnock currently resides in Aptos, California, and enjoys spending her free time gardening, hiking, and reforesting an 80-acre timber property in Oregon. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you. Ken Weissner teaches English at De Anza Community College in Cupertino. He advises and edits Red Wheelbarrow, their literary journal. He coordinates with Poetry Center San Jose, the Red Wheelbarrow Poetry Prize, this year's final judges, Dorian Locks and Joseph Millar. For 15 years, Ken edited Quarry West out of Porter College, UCSC. Ken has published three volumes of his own poetry with Hummingbird Press, including Anything on Earth in 2010 and Cricket to Star in 2019. Ken's poems have appeared in recent years in magazines as Perfume River Poetry Review, Catamaran, Sessura, Nine Mile, Porter Gulch Review, River Babble, Monterey Poetry Review, DMQ Review, and Frenzy. Ken also teaches poetry writing at Salinas Valley State Prison. Welcome, Ken. Thank you, Julie. So great to be together. Uh, the three of us, along with Rose Black, have been teaching at the Salinas Valley State Prison for a number of years. And Lisa, maybe you can start us off giving us a little history of the program there. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, the program actually was a long time gestating. Uh, Ellen Bass and a psychologist at the prison, Ben Block, who's uh, a poet himself and son of Hannah Block, a very well-known poet in the Bay Area, worked together for a long time to get the prison to accept the notion of a poetry writing workshop as part of the mental health program at Salinas Valley State Prison, which is a level four maximum security prison. The program got started and Ellen had a very busy schedule and was uh, 
put out a call to her network and um, fortunately um, I was able to pop in uh, right away and uh, Nancy Miller Gomez joined in um, after that. Rose came in, Ken, Julie and Jessica Leash. So we've had a number of, of wonderful teachers um, and Ben was with the program for many years until he uh, took another job outside of the state prison program. And we've been fortunate to be able to keep it going despite the loss of our um, sponsor with some wonderful um, recreational therapists who are sort of the linchpin of keeping things going in the mental health program at the prison. So we go in every Friday for three hours and um, have been doing this, boy, for seven years, I believe it is, something like that now. So it's it's been wonderful and it's had its ups and downs and the prison's gone through a lot of changes. There's constant uh, shift in who the population is and who who is able to be in the program. They move people around a lot. We have people we call the disappeared who we don't know where they go or what's happened to them. Um, and so change is a norm and we just keep trying to do uh, the best we can despite whatever changes are going on in the prison and the yard. Yeah, thank, thank you for that, Lisa. Uh, maybe, Ken, you could read us a poem to start us off and our listeners can start to get a taste of the work that's coming out of this workshop. Well, okay, I will. And, you know, the uh, meet, meeting these uh, poets has been the privilege we've really all had for so long now. Um, it's the thing we carry with us. Um, and it is a man's prison, so we often call it, you know, we, we, we're, we enjoy working with the men, the inmates. Um, for example, Ubaldo Teque Jr., originally a family from Guatemala, immigrants, and um, from Southern California, um, uh, you know, in, in, involved in... Uh, some activity that, that uh, uh, landed him in Salinas Valley State Prison, but he's really found himself as a poet. I'll read uh, one or two of his poems, they're not that long. Um, so for example, we, we have one called Mind Over Matter. Um, uh, that frosty, or let me start over, Mind Over Matter. This frosty morning, a brawny wind pushes the trash on the yard toward the fence. I charge ahead in the opposite direction. My tinted prescription glasses guard my eyesight from the dusty current headed my way. The raised up sky has no clouds holding on today. I envy three seagulls as they glide above me. They give in to the wind guiding them away from here. My gray thermal top is just a filter. I can feel the cleansed air bash my upper body. Both of my hands are curled up into fists, attempting to preserve the heat held in my palms. Suddenly my attention follows a clap, clap, clap sound. It's a plastic bag wrapped around the blocks, entangled on the barbed wire fence. As I reach the prison law library, the clerk asks for my prison ID. Then she unexpectedly says, mind over matter. She's wearing a scarf and gloves. I look at the blue glove pointing toward the prison yard, and then I see a black man, a prisoner, jogging around the track, barefoot, 
and shirtless. His body is captive, but he is free. Beautiful, really nice reading of that, Ken. Can I read one more little one of Obaldo's? Yeah, please. Okay. This one is, um, is called uh, Fresh Air. And what I love about this one is it shows how over the years he's become, he really self-identifies now as a poet. So, you know, Rose Black, our, our colleague, has is, is, is worked with him really closely. And um, she's creating a chapbook of his work. You can feel in this poem how he's writing always about the freedom of poetry, too. He's not, so there's always a kind of a, a very beautiful, literal, figurative depth and richness to his work now. This is called Fresh Air, Ubaldo Teke Jr. There's no balance inside of blackness because that's where anger and unhappiness grow. Hope is a distant, dim spark. Wingless days oppress the body and mind. Cold concrete walls observe the poor pale man within me struggle in my nightmares, struggle in daylight, innocent against all odds. Patiently mother air pushes through the curtains of this dark warehouse where men lose their morals, ideas, and willpower. Ah, fresh air. Finally, I grow, and today I know my rhythmical human purpose amongst outlaws. He will have a, a book uh, soon. We have several of these little chapbooks in process. They're most through the Right to Write Press that maybe Lisa will talk about later, or one of us will. Wrote. Yeah, we, we have that on our agenda for sure. Se several of the poets now have. kind of The chapbooks will be small versions, mostly for friends and family, but uh, that, that sense that Ubaldo has of being a poet in the world is just gorgeous, and he's not the only one. It's kind of like the Jimmy Santiago Baca story. And, you know, the men all love that film. Yes. Uh, about both the, the Bill Moyers Language of Life version of Jimmy's life and also the, uh, the new uh, Kickstarter uh, film that he did about his story. And uh, they, they've become poets like Baca did. And, and uh, this, is, this is what energizes me and keeps me excited is to meet new poets and uh, of all kinds, including these men. Absolutely. And those two poems that you read, Ken, were so vivid. And the imagery and the metaphor of them uh, is just so deeply alive. Well, I know Lisa and I wish we could read you 100 poems. <laughs> well, maybe you would like to read one now, Lisa. Well, sure. The one I was thinking about reading is by Larry Jones would come up with some idea for what we're writing or what the lesson is. And he says, I've got that. I know exactly what we're talking about. And he goes off and he writes the most astounding thing that has nothing to do necessarily with what we were teaching, but it's what he needed. And this poem came from one of those. He worked on it for weeks when he was uh, trying to grapple with something that the lesson had, had started in him. This one's called Pete Rose. When I saw him coming down that second base line, it put me in the mind of when we were hunting shiny things like fish, all kinds of perch, carp, guppies, goldfish, pollywogs, crawdads, and some we didn't know what they were. When the water dried up till it was just big puddles, you could catch them in your hands in some places, in the canals that ran through Kings County, California. 
I was nine or ten years old, hoping to go home with a crocker sack almost halfway full of fish. The sun was hanging high and reflecting off their bodies and backs, and you could see bullfrog holes up the side of the canal, big holes. That's where they were at. We had to find some sticks out of the trash that had gathered in the canal to hunt the frogs. The fish could wait. I found my stick that was long enough to stick in the hole and poke around to see if I could get anything to move in there. But Cousin Teacus wouldn't listen. He had his own way of hunting. I told him, don't be sticking your hands down in them holes or your face in until you know what's in there. It could be snakes down up in there. He said, shut up, Bobeen. And I told him, don't be calling me that no more, for I whoop your ass. So he went to hunting, sticking his arms and hands off in them holes, and his face way too close, looking up in them holes. Pete Rose. Pete Rose was swimming through the dust with his arms and hands flying, while his body was sliding on the ground, as if he was riding on a wave. That was one hell of a baseball player there, and I loved the way he loved to play the game. I could go home with a grin if we got four or five of them bullfrogs and a crocker sack. Even half a half of a bag would be all right. I could see Mama's smile that lit up the room, so I was back at it. The sun was already high in the sky. Cousin Ticus said, I got something, so I started his way to help him. You had to knock the frog out to do anything with him. Once he was outside that hole, he was hard to handle. Ticus was digging and pulling at something all right, but he made the wrong move and tripped on his own feet, going backwards. He jumped up and was going to try to make it back to the hole to block it off. He was moving that way, but something wasn't right. I saw a shadow moving his way fast. I was stuck in time, in my mind, eating up ground, moving toward Ticus. I looked up and saw the big frog hit Ticus right in the eye and bounce off his head. The big frog stuck out his front legs in the air, getting ready to land like a big airplane. With a splash, he hit the water, and he was gone. I laughed so hard, I was crying. We went on fishing and hunting the rest of the day. Every time I thought about it, I just fell out laughing to this very day. I loved that experience and that time of my life. Just like Pete Rose. Pete Rose, from then to now, he has always been in my Hall of Fame. They think you fell for the love of it, but you knew it wasn't for you. That's when you knew your ass was in a world of trouble. Fabulous, fabulous. Thank you, Lisa. Again, such vivid writing. Yeah, Mr. Jones has such a, a, an amazing command of rhythm, dialect, the speed of language. I just love his stuff. I love reading it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just beautiful. You know what they want, too. Like, he'll write stuff and we'll say, what about this punctuation? And he's got like, you know, he's like Emily Dickinson. It's like, you leave that comma alone. You leave that dash alone. I know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And he's, <laughs> he's written um, a huge amount of great poems. He has an interesting piece that is an, a novel, a novella full of poems. And so it goes back and forth between the prose and the poetry. And it's just remarkable. It has preaching and sermons and, um, just so much richness in it. Mm -hmm. It's astounding. You know, last time I was in class, uh, which was uh, March 6th, right at the beginning of all of the madness, uh, Jessica Leach and I were teaching together. And Jessica is a cantor. And she sang several of Mr. Jones' poems. Oh. 
It was one of the most uh, remarkable experiences I've had in the workshop uh, because we were all spellbound. And Mr. Jones had, had read the poems and they had the same kind of rhythm that the poem you just read had, and they were extraordinary. And then Jessica sang several of them, each one unique and different, like her, inter you know, her interpretation. And we were all speechless. How and cool was, is that? I would have loved to have seen that. Yeah. I think, I, I don't know for the two of you, but one of the things I have really loved uh, teaching in this workshop is that there's always uh, some surprise. You know, we kind of come in with a lesson, an idea of what I want to do with them, and um, then there's just something amazing that unfolds uh, in the course of the afternoon. Yeah, there's another story about, about a mystery. I love your story there about Jessica singing Mr. Jones's poems. Boy, I wish I'd been there for that. Um, but there's Rose's story too about the, him asking, uh, you know, just to, just to show you another angle on it, um, you know, Mr. Jones asked Rose Black, you know, what's a poetry reading anyway? You know, what's it like? Like, so in other words, just to think about the isolation and the difference uh, in, in the awareness of poetry and community. So, and he said to her, are they like church? Because she was trying to describe what a poetry reading was. And so Mr. Jones said, are they like church? And, uh, and she said, what do you mean, Larry, are they like church? Well, you know, he says, well, does everybody have a party afterwards and hug each other? And yep, yep, Larry, they're like church. The good ones are. Um, you know, and so what you say about surprise, it, it, it's, um, it's, it's in every conversation and experience. And um, yeah, I hear you. <laughs> I think one of the most amazing surprises that we have is how the group holds each other. So somebody will come in with a piece of writing that's really raw or some life experience that is still just has them spinning. And in a situation, in a context that is overall very isolating and um, risky, these guys reach out and help each other. They hold each other. Um, they they complement each other's work. They, they, they celebrate each other's progress as poets. You know, they'll talk about how, man, when you came in here, your writing wasn't anywhere near as good as it is now, you know, and, and they'll point out exactly what's improved. It's, it's really remarkable to see the camaraderie. Yeah, and even in the course of a, of a lesson that you're doing, like I, I was there on Valentine's Day, and I brought in a number of poems from around the world about all different kinds of love. And we did a writing exercise. And one of the men said, oh, I struggled so much writing this. And he read what he wrote. And it had some very wonderful lines in it. And then the guys just rallied around him in support and then he made the comment like, yeah, I'm trying to have my marriage in 15 minute phone calls. And they're like, oh, put that in the poem, put that in the poem. That's the line you want right there. And they would tell him exactly where to put that line. Yeah, 
been it's been a humbling and great experience for for us i think and that's one of the things that surprised me about the work is how ultimately it's learning about the depth and the capabilities and the beauty of the men that, that keeps me going back this is the hive poetry collective on ksqd 90.7 fm i'm your host julie murphy and we're talking this evening with lisa charnuck and ken weissner about the poetry workshop at the salinas valley state prison i'm going to read a poem from the uh, 2016 red wheelbarrow and this is a poem by howard street jr this poem is called hello namesake Hello, namesake, long time no see. Saw us in the mirror this morning, saw you and me. Did you feel the tear, the single tear roll down my face? I know you like, damn, is that all I get? LOL. To that I say, I live in a cell with another man. Surely you understand, I can't let another man see me cry. Besides, I cried like the baby you went half on when I was first born. Hello, namesake, long time no see, R.I.P. It's a good poem. I think that was one on a lesson that Rose brought in about mirrors. Yes. I was looking at one uh, by one of our really early poets as well, um, Mr. Savage, who was in pretty much the first group, you know, when it started, and was one of those people who really set the tenor for the workshop to be a place where they would hold each other. He was a very um, uh, charismatic person, but incredibly self-effacing, and, and it was one of those situations where you just knew he was setting the tone but but wouldn't wouldn't act that way um we had done a lesson on poem of the moment and he wrote a poem called moments and again from the 2016 red wheelbarrow was my moment the second i was born the first sign of my coming the instant the placenta was torn the sudden of the tsunami the promise of nature's phenomenon only the strength of a mother's love, the unconditional embrace of the natural disaster coming on. Earthquake after earthquake, before I breathe, I bring pain. My first cry, the first of her many, and throughout her life, nothing changed. Her joy, the birth of a child, who would want one? The misery and shattering of lives, the wake of my destruction. For the touching of so many lives, there will be no atonement. If I was stillborn, I wouldn't have been so many moments. Thank you, Lisa. It's a beautiful reading of that poem. And you know, it's interesting because Sir Savage is one of those people that's dropped out of sight entirely. If you, we have a way that we can find people which prison they've been moved to, but he no longer shows in that register at all and we have no idea what that means we want to think it means that he pearled out that's a pretty low probability of that and ken i know you were thinking about talking some about mr madden and this might be a time for that 
Well, let me read a poem by Mr. Ryan Madden and then talk about him. Yeah, so th this poem is, is um, uh, eluding me right now, but I had it all laid out here. So I'm just about to find it. Well, I'm, I might say just to our listeners that um, just remind some of the things that Lisa said early on as we began, that this program began in um, the D yard at Salinas Valley, which is the mental health unit. And so originally all of our participants were part of the outpatient mental health program. Now that's changed since we began. No, they actually, they are all still mental health um, participants. The yard is now a mixed yard, but the only people eligible for our program are mental health patients. Oh, right. Yeah, thanks for that clarification. So have you got your poem there, Ken? Yes. Yeah, so this is called uh, The Journey, and thank you for that information. It kind of helps frame the story of Ryan Madden a little bit. Uh, but this is a, a poem of his that was published. Uh, we publish the, the men's work in our red wheelbarrow whenever we can. Um, and that, that's been another uh, interesting experience for me over the years is to realize that is to gradually awaken in the last five years, like why, why aren't inmates part of, uh, you know, magazine community? So in other words, I realized that as an editor, I've been perpetuating the, the walling out by, and only gradually uh, realizing how I'm contributing or complicit in some way in that if I don't bring those voices into a journal. Um, so Ryan Madden was one of these men and uh, also one of the men who has a story that we'll tell you in a moment. The journey. While walking through the quiet forest one morning, I suddenly came across an Indian asleep under a redwood. Startled by the crackling leaves, he awoke in a swirl of movement to bind me with a purposeful gaze. When he studied me long enough, he firmly declared, only a man of good intention can find me still sleeping. Otherwise, the mountain would have whispered a warning. Without an ally of my own and having never known intention, I turned to run and never looked back. Yet, try as I must, his lion tooth necklace kept me planted and firm. With this decision, he motioned for me to follow him through the unknown and the forest out beyond it. We journeyed for what seemed like years, fighting through brambles, briars, slugging through muck in its mire, until we discovered the beaten path, cutting sharply through the forest. There he asked me, have you been here before? I replied, only in my heart. And so you see, he gently offered, the here and now makes all the difference. With a sudden sense of direction, I began to lead the way without even a legend. It was I who pierced the tree line at the navel of the lake, where I fully inhaled the reflection, hoping to be baptized by its pristine serenity. It was then I knew what I was searching for. The mountain and its majestic girth lay cradling the shore, breathing in the purity of the air way up there. It reminded me that Giza's complex was only just a copy, the best that man could produce. Here, the real thing, alive in its glory, dared me to be so great. In the power of the moment, I saw this warrior was here to color its fulfillment as only wisdom can. Here, he told me, the mountains prefer to live by lakes so they can see themselves each morning in the figure of God's grandeur and regain their confidence lest they crumble and fall away. 
Remember to look inside yourself as the mountains do, even the great ones such as this, which compel all Goliaths to bow in awe and make way. They come from deep within the earth and manifest themselves in their climb. It is the mountain that teaches. There is no such thing as weakness, only strength we haven't found. This is the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD 90.7 FM in Santa Cruz. You can find the Hive Poetry Collective on Facebook at the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD. You can visit our website, hivepoetry.org, and follow us on Twitter, at Hive Poetry. I'm your host, Julie Murphy, and tonight we're talking with Lisa Charnock and Ken Weissner, who teach a poetry workshop with Rose Black and myself at Salinas Valley State Prison. And we've just listened to a poem by Mr. Madden. And Ken, would you like to share some of his story with us, please? Well... I received this letter last year. It's from his mother, and I thought I would just read it to you. Hi, Ken. I wanted to let you know that in spite of our efforts to support Ryan through his prison term, we lost our Ryan on March 30th of this year. We have struggled to keep going through this devastating turn of life, but we know that he's no longer suffering in a dark cell all alone as he has been, as he had been at the end of his life. I received a poem, The Journey, that someone found online that was written by Ryan while he worked with the poetry workshop up at Salinas Valley State Prison, the year 2015. It was his best year spent in prison, and I can credit you and your organization for a very big part in that. Ryan had two more years to go. So that's one of the things that's remarkable. Ryan had two more years to go, but he had severe depression, and it seems that the move from Salinas Valley only exacerbated things, even though he eventually came down closer to us so that we could visit him more. He just couldn't keep going in the environment that he was in. And then the letter goes on, but uh, I think, you know, and, and, and we, we published uh, his mom's essay about her son and the whole family came to our reading. And, uh, you know, again, it's, the, it's both the tragedy, the shuttling about, you know, trying to be in a place where you're treated for your, anxiety or depression or whatever it is, but there's a lot of drugs in prison and uh, a, lot of, a lot of problems with getting good mental health care, not to mention rehabilitative services, both. But uh, with two years to go, he, he couldn't make it in. So his family gathered and the, the, the good side for us was how they came to this reading and decided along with Ryan himself to see him as a poet and to listen and to, you know, understand him that way as a family and it really helped them um to grieve his loss uh but you know both the uh you know what lisa said about mr savage the kind of disappearance of a writer or not knowing what happened to them or you know in this case finding out they passed away um is another aspect of this kind of work the uh the dehumanization is is radical and, and the men are are shuttled about and uh often lost mm-hmm. and so that whole story the the poet the poem and the family and then the the story of of the end of his life all kind of together describe maybe what we feel a lot of the time when we're doing this stuff i wish i'd remembered on march 30th that was the year anniversary i didn't 
so he's been gone a year now. Yeah. Lisa, do you want to chime in? You look like you have something on your mind. Well, I, you know, every time we talk about this, it, it just brings home to all of us, I think, how fragile each of the people that we work with, their situation is internally, externally, and how for many of them, the ability to write is one of the few things they can control and that they can own. And they, how much they appreciate being seen and engaged with just as another person in the prison setting, which isn't that common. And so the, you know, Mr. Madden was such an active participant in the workshop and it was heartbreaking to hear what happened and incredibly um, validating to hear that the workshop had meant what it did to him. And I, we hear that from others as well. It, it, it just, it changes each of us, I think, to have any sense that just by being a conduit for this ability for them to find their own words, we're helping them be themselves in a way that they can't otherwise be. Yeah, Lisa, I totally agree with that. I, I found, you know, some of my initial motivation to teach in this program was uh, to be of service and to share something that I care very deeply about with people that might not otherwise have access. And yet what I found coming into the classroom just so incredibly inspiring to sit with a group of men that might not speak to each other on the yard, but listen so deeply to each other's work and allow themselves to be vulnerable and write really using all their faculties, using all of their emotion, using their intellect, using the craft that they develop or have come in with. And I found that I walk away incredibly inspired. And with the thought, you know, if these guys can write this here, what, you know, what's my excuse for going into the comfort of my home and maintaining my own writing practice? So I, I found it actually very inspiring and very strengthening and enlivening to sh share the, you know, the joys and the sorrows. Yeah, I, I think we all, I know that Lisa, you feel that way. We, all, all people who teach learn from their students and that's, that's a, that's just a, a deep truth about teaching. And that in this case, it's uh, sort of underscored and, uh, you know, it's very humbling how much we learn and that they yeah. accept, they accept us is really the big thing and allow us to, to be there uh, with them. Yeah, uh, you know, at, at some point during the program, I'd like to mention, based on what Lisa says, if we have like two minutes, doesn't have to be now, about the, the whole arts and prisons, uh, the importance of arts and prisons and how people like our own assembly, assemblymen, Mark Stone, for example, is it's been a major force actually in arts and corrections. And there's a lot of local connections to Santa Cruz actually, which with very successful statewide rehabilitative um, programs and 
Um, so there's a whole history there with the, the, the William James Foundation um, example. Uh, and um, uh, currently, the, the, the California Lawyers for the Arts, I mean, if someone out there wants to get involved in making sure there's more rehabilitative presence in California prisons, you can do it by contacting uh, uh, Mark Stone or by looking the website up of William James or the California Lawyers for the Arts or making contributions. Um, uh, Jack Bowers is our local legendary 40-year force in, in keeping these programs going through through bankruptcies and and t peak points. And um, so right now they're trying to get 1% of the budget for the arts and the uh, as a line item to keep it going in the state, but it's always a major struggle. And I would invite all of us to be involved in, in making sure there's so many programs, alternatives to violence program, AVP or arts and corrections. The thing about arts and corrections is you, the last thing I'll say that arts and corrections is you can't, it's really hard to measure the data about recidivism that all the uh, number crunchers want. Like, can you show me how writing a poem prevented people from going back to prison? You know, they're looking for this quantitative data. And um, so what I've been learning from talking to Jack Bowers and others who've studied it for 40 years is that, uh, you know, and they're trying to get into more psychological research and evidence, uh, not just evidence-based, but more holistic-based, um, like, you know, what's the good it does? I mean, the, for example, the, um, the correctional officers love the programs, is what I hear. And so, and San Quentin has become a model for the arts uh, in corrections. And because of some private interests, local people who kept it going during the downtimes, um, there's a lot more to say about it. I just want to put it out there as, a, as also a social political issue that we can engage. Uh, you know, we're always asking for other poets to join us, but this other way of looking at it is equally important. You can, uh, yeah, I really appreciate you talking about that, Ken. And we will um, put links up for all of these programs uh, and the journals that we've talked about on our website, thehivepoetry.org. And uh, you can come back to those and dig in and learn more and hopefully engage and get involved. Thanks. Well, how about another poem? I have uh, Searching for San Francisco by David Massetti. You, know, you talk about these men being part of our community. Uh, here's, here's a guy who's um, also been shuttled around from prison to prison, and Rose knows where he is now. It's hard to keep track. We've published a few of his poems. Searching for San Francisco, David Massetti. The lion, the fox, and the phoenix. I must rise from the ashes of my youth, the time when I made so many fatal mistakes, from the time when I only knew how to play the ferocious lion, throwing caution to the wind. Inside the lion's den, I grew up. Now, 20 years later, I have learned to be part fox. In fact, I'm mostly fox, avoiding problems before they occur. I don't ramble, I don't drink, I don't borrow, I don't loan, I don't buy drugs, I don't sell drugs. I don't take unnecessary risks. I've learned how to spot the traps and avoid them. I've learned to spot the fake friends and true enemies. These are the skills I'll take with me if I ever make it back to my beloved city by the bay. Humbleness, caution.
Then I can enjoy the old Victorian two-story departments, the Art Deco, the Palace of Fine Arts, where I used to be a mad scientist, Chinatown, where I need Jung Pa, North Beach, where I remembered childhood earthquakes, the Mission District, where I ran wild as buck at the end of Call of the Wild, or White Fang at the beginning. I don't know which I'm more like, Buck or White Fang. I think it's important to be both. It's important to be part of my city, to recover from mistakes and get back to a righteous path, a productive, helpful path. I got to get back to the city with my new talents, see Coit Tower and Golden Gate Park, play chess downtown at Powell Street, Twin Peaks with the wind and telescopes, Lombard Street, where I can be crooked and still be a good man. Beautiful. <laughs> That's a, such a, a hopeful and charming poem. Long poems about chess, and he plays a lot of chess, and about the voluminous reading he does. And not only Jessica, but also uh, David and Massetti have, 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 have uh, sung opera in our workshop. That's right. That's right. Yeah, when he was there regularly, I often had the feeling that he could teach it as well as I. <laughs> He's just a polyglot. He's wonderful polymath. You're listening to the Hive Poetry Collective here on K-Squid 90.7 FM in Santa Cruz. I'm your host, Julie Murphy, and now we're going to speak with Rose Black. Welcome, Rose. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Rose lives and works at Renaissance Stone, a sculpting studio in East Oakland. Her poetry has been widely published, and she is the author of three books, Clearing, Winter Light, and Green Field. Her first two books are included in Yale's Beinecke Library for the Yale Collection of American Literature. Rose has been editor of Marin Poetry Center Anthology, and she currently teaches poetry at Salinas Valley State Prison. It's wonderful to have you with us, Rose. Well, thank you, Julie. Do you want to say a little bit about how you came to join the workshop? Yeah, I'll say a little bit because um, unlike the other teachers, when I first drove down to the prison, I had no idea that I'd be wanting to teach there. I was coming simply to observe a class. But Ben Block told me that the only way I could get there was if I filled out all this paperwork saying I was a substitute teacher. So I did that. And uh, I observed when I got there, and I liked what I saw. And lo and behold, they needed a teacher. So I was all set to go. And that's how it happened uh, with me. Wow. Well, that, that's a surprising story. It's like uh, entering a poem through the side door. You entered this workshop through the side door. Exactly. You know, Julie, what I saw there I sort of least expected to find in a place like a prison. Uh, you know, I saw something just so miraculous and uh, beautiful. Uh, and I really, uh, you know, it's just been a great fit for me uh, these uh, past six years since I started. Yeah. You know, uh, Lisa and Ken and I were talking a little bit earlier about that surprise of what we actually encounter when we're in the poetry room with the men. Indeed. Uh, you know, it's trust, it's tenderness, uh, it's a feeling of safety for me as well as for them. Yeah. 
it, it's really quite beautiful. Yeah. I'm wondering if you would like to uh, maybe talk a little bit about Mr. Humdi and read one of his poems. Sure. Okay, uh, Mr. Humdi uh, was uh, there since uh, I first started teaching. Uh, so he's an old timer from my point of view. And uh, Ken uh, is uh, helping uh, James Humdi publish a chapbook, which will be out uh, soon, I hope. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and Mr. Humdi, in his artist statement, uh, says that poetry is a bright light in a dark place where words are a highway to freedom. You know, very beautiful. The name of his book is Hard Way, and that also comes from his artist statement where he um, said that the first 14 years I spent totally on the streets and everything came the hard way. So there's a couple of poems um, in the book that I particularly like. They're my favorite of his poems, and they're poems about fathers and sons. Oh, wonderful. And uh, that has been a very uh, popular theme. And uh, I'm going to read Me and My Dad. Beautiful. Hello, Father. Today, I'm reminded of your cadence with arm, army-like precision. I can still hear your voice, smell the richness of sandalwood fragrance right after you've shaved. I remember being afraid of the dark, and you held me, allowed me to feel safe. I'm calling out to you, Father, because I've followed in your footsteps. You lost a son to prison, and I lost my son to the reaper with gunshots. I'm calling out to you, Father, because I've become hard, just like you wanted me to be. You know, when you died, I merely whimpered, didn't shed a tear. I'm numb, just like you, Father. I love you for who you wanted to be and curse you for what you did to our family. I called your name, and after the tenth time, I realized there wouldn't be any answer, just memories of horrors in addition to cry-out-loud laughter. Father, I picture you frail and weak, walking with a cane, and now I cry because now I know what you meant to me. The horrible monster called cancer got into your bones, and all you thought was to come and see me in jail. Twenty-two hours, no sleep on a bus ride, AWOL from hospice care, never fearing death. Hello, Father. I'm afraid to die here. I'm all alone, just like the day you died in the home. Next time, we'll be together at long last. Wow, that is such a strong poem. It's so beautifully written. So vivid. It's amazing that um, Mr. Hum Humdi is speaking so directly in this poem. The speaker is speaking directly to the father and bringing in the generations 
of the fathers and sons lost. It's uh, utterly heartbreaking. Yes, he's calling, calling out. And uh, it's, it's, it's really moving. Yeah. We, we see the father so vividly with the cane and the laughter. It includes everything. Yeah, he really uh, pays attention to detail. Yes. And what's fascinating, Julie, is that at, at one point he was writing a very different kind of poetry that didn't work at all. You know, it was, it was um, very general. It was not personal. Uh, it was about uh, monsters, but not personal monsters, just um, sort of cliched monsters. And then he, then he comes into this, which is so opposite. And uh, I, I don't know, it just, it just blew me away. Hmm. Yeah, I remember some of his early work in the workshops, and he was wrestling with his ideas. Yes. He was really wrestling with all these conflicting feelings. And now that this, like in this poem, it's turned so intimate. Exactly, Julie. I think he was also wrestling with his vulnerability, with the courage to go where he had to go to say what he had to say. Yes, well put, Rose. Well put. I'm, I'm very big on vulnerability. Um, you know, it's been said that good writing is an act of vulnerability. And we were talking with Lisa and Ken earlier uh, about the vulnerability that comes in the room, in the workshop, and not only the writing that the men do when we're together, but also the things that they write on their own and bring in to read. That there's a lot of vulnerability. And, and, and that requires trust, and it speaks to the trust in the room and the trust among us. And that was one of the many beautiful surprises um, you know, over the years, yeah. How how men that w who wouldn't trust each other in the yard, as as Ken and Ju and um, Lisa have already mentioned, uh, somehow in in the room, uh, they were able to do that. I want to turn to uh, Mr. Teke now. May I do that? Please. So there's a story about Mr. Teke and his father. Again, a father theme that I'd like to share. Uh, he and his father had been estranged for decades. And somehow when uh, Mr. Teke began to write poetry, he discovered his father had written poetry in his youth. And they began to bond over poetry. And then they began to um, send poems back and forth. And Mr. Teke would translate his father's poems. And it just became a beautiful bonding. And uh, as, as Mr. Teke said, I'm just gonna quote this, hanging out in the streets of South Los Angeles, I lost sight of my true potential, but I've always had poetry in my veins, and now I've formed a strong bond with my hero, my father. So they became very close and um, it was devastating when his father died mm -hmm. uh, a couple of months ago. But before his father died, his father was able to see his, that's Teke's father's poem, published in the Red Wheelbarrow and translated by his son. 
So the poem and translation are both uh, uh, published there. Well, th thank you for sharing that. It's such a beautiful story about uh, Mr. Teke Jr. and Mr. Teke Sr. Oh, by the way, his book is called Nino Inmigrante, pardon my accent, uh, Boy Immigrant, tells the story of his towering borders crossing with his mother. It talks about his uh, native Guatemala, and uh, it talks about his prison experience and his family. His family means so much to him, and I think one of the reasons Teke has been able to accomplish all he has is because he's had his family's support. Yeah, it makes it such a makes difference. All the difference in the world. Yeah. Well, Rose, it's been wonderful having you come in and join us in this hour, and I know we could go on and on all evening. I hope you'll join us again. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much, Julie. It's been a pleasure to talk about all of this. Thank you. You're listening to the Hive Poetry Collective on K-Squid 90.7 FM, Santa Cruz, California. I'm your host, Julie Murphy, and we're going to return to our conversation with Lisa Charnuck and Ken Weitzner. Lisa, maybe you could begin by telling us a little bit about the Right to Write Press. Right to Write Press was an effort to um, find a way to, to give folks who were writing in prison something tangible for all of their effort, and specifically something tangible with a spine and a cover, front matter, back matter, and pages in between full of poems, or novella, our first one that we published is a novella. So several of us teachers are involved, although it's unrelated to the teaching program at Salinas Valley State Prison, it is a separate activity a nonprofit Right to Write Press, which um, was established to publish works by incarcerated writers in California. Um, the goal is to get out a couple of years, um, and uh, we were guided at the very beginning. I'd really like to dedicate um, this notion to Leila Ray, who passed away this last spring. Um, who really helps with, with what's involved in publishing a book and, and how many could you really do in a year and what's involved with a launch. The press exists to put together with teachers in a, any prison setting to put, help a person bring together a manuscript, get the manuscript to the press, and then the press will work to get it published and give the author author's copies to send out to friends and family. It's also available. Their books are available for sale on Amazon and on the Right to Write Press website. The goal is, this is real, this is tangible. We are authors all together. And so that's, that's what Right to Write Press does. Yeah, that's so great, Lisa. Thank you. And we will post the website for Right to Write Press on our website. Thank you. Yeah. You want me to say something about Red Wheelbarrow, Julie? I would love you to talk about the Red Wheelbarrow. We did a little bit. It's just a, it's a magazine that we publish through the ends of college. It's partly for students, but also once a year we publish for a, a national edition. Comes out in the fall. The launch is usually November, December. And we've been including uh, writing from our, the men in our programs for, I don't know, five years now. Uh, we still will. And uh, you can, uh, Find the, uh, just go to the De Anza Red Wheelbarrow site and you can find out how to order 
back issues or just email me and I'll Google me and email me and I'll send you some. So, no, I just, just very quickly, the 2016 was an amazing folio of artwork and poems and Right to Write Press has that available on our website as well. Yeah, that was prison art in that one, as well as prison writing um, by uh, another artist we, we lost track of who is brilliant. Uh, is that the one that was censored, Lisa? Yes, the, uh, the we authors had... were not allowed to receive their copy of it. It was the one, the one red wheelbarrow we were ever <laughs> uh, had to reprint because uh, once it was censored, it became very popular and everybody wanted a copy of the censored. <laughs> Uh, book that it, you know, uh, which is fascinating also. Well, I want to thank you both for joining us this evening. It's been delightful to speak with you, and uh, I appreciate both of you so much. Personally, it's uh, an honor to be able to teach together and be involved in this project with you. Thanks for joining us tonight and sharing the poems and your thoughts and your experiences. Be for the honey, be be for the yeah. be for the honey, be be for the. You're listening to High Poetry Collective on KSQD ninety point seven FM. <laughs>